Welcome to Behind the Schemes, a conversation about protecting our planet's precious wildlife from commerce, corruption, and counterfeit cures. This is Risha Kota Larsen with Behind the Schemes, and in this episode, we're taking a closer look at a biased ivory trade report with Mary Rice from the Environmental Investigation Agency. At the recent CITES Standing Committee meeting, a rather questionable ivory report was discussed. One of the ideas that the authors of this report tried to present is that ivory trade, and I'm quoting, should contribute positively to the long-term conservation of elephants and their habitats in Africa. What do you think that means? Um, I think what they mean by that is that wildlife, if it wants to stay, it has to pay. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a catchy little message that is used um, by the pro-trade lobby. Um, essentially, they value the, the wildlife purely by economic in economic terms and that unless it returns some sort of gain then it has no value and therefore should doesn't deserve to stay um, essentially if you look at countries like South Africa where they talk about how they've invested huge amounts of money in um, conserving their wildlife, they use that as an argument for then saying that because they've invested so much money, they should see a return on that investment. Um, and the fact that they they view wildlife only in terms of economic value, not in terms of its intrinsic value, is is a concern, which of course is not shared by the by the lobby that is opposed to trade. Hmm. And the timing of this ivory trade report, um, 2011 was the worst year in recent history for elephant killings and seizures and just illegal ivory trade. So what, what about the timing of this ivory trade report? Well, the timing, um, I mean, the timing coincides with, with a particularly um, Bad period for poaching and illegal trade, but the the process itself started back in 2007 at the conference of the parties in the Hague when uh, South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, and Zimbabwe were finally given permission to go ahead and sell their stockpiles. Um, there was a great deal of discussion that went on at that meeting because the issue is so polarised. Mm -hmm discussion went on behind closed doors um, and and um, there were lots of different options being presented on the table and lots of people trying to broker agreements um, but ultimately they agreed that if they were allowed to sell their legal stockpiles they would not come forward for another nine years with a request to sell legal stockpiles so the in effect, creating a kind of limited moratorium for those countries. But in addition to that, they agreed on the understanding that there would be that a process would start by which um, a mechanism or some criteria would be decided on how any future international ivory trade could resume. 
And the time frame for that was that something had to be presented to the parties um, at the conference of the parties to um, CITES, which is, and that's next March, so at COP16. So in 2007, did you say a nine-year moratorium started? Yeah, it, it was a it was a limited. I mean, it's it's not really the the the, the right terminology. Oh, okay. Like, I mean, it was presented as a, a nine-year moratorium because obviously it, it that presents a fairly positive um, step, if you like. They. Mm-hmm moratorium for the anti-trade lobby is is obviously a good yeah. it's a good signal mm-hmm. um, moratorium or, or the nine-year resting period if you like applied only to Botswana South Africa Namibia and Zimbabwe it did not apply to countries like to you know to other countries with elephants so countries like Tanzania and Zambia came forward at the next conference of the parties, so COP15 yeah. in Doha yeah, I, I in 2010, with proposals to downlist and to sell. Oh, yes, I do remember that. And at the standing committee meeting, this most recent report, what was the reaction to the other parties when that was presented? Uh, the reaction, I think, probably was fairly critical. So the reaction from... Trade lobby uh, was supportive of the findings of the report. Um, um, the uh, I mean, reactions of the anti-trade lobby were horror, essentially, and and sort of disbelief that such a thing was actually on the table. And then I guess the middle ground, um, there were a lot of concerns, uh, predominantly yeah, around yeah. the terms of reference yeah, and the failure yeah. of the, the document to, to meet the terms of reference. Did the uh, parties that were opposed to trade say anything or speak up or try to ask questions? Yeah, there were a lot of there were a lot of questions asked. Um, I mean, the consultant was was very. Um, professional and articulate in the presentation of the document. Um, he, he did an excellent job. It was very measured. It seemed very reasonable. It was, it was you know, delivered with aplomb. Um, but nonetheless, it received a huge amount of criticism. There was a lot of criticism, even from what could be described as sort of neutral parties. Um, and again, they hung their concerns mm-hmm. around the failure of the terms of reference. So rather than engaging in the debate as to whether there yeah. should I mean, I or shouldn't be a trade, they, they focused on really the fact really that the consultants were given terms of reference and simply ignored them. And, that on, and solely on that basis, the document was not fit for purpose and could therefore not be considered. And the terms of reference that you're referring to, could you explain those in a little more detail? Well, the terms of essentially tasked the consultants with developing a set of criteria by which a future international trade in ivory could resume. But within, within that, they also had to take into account um, failures of the existing system, such as it is, the, the, the current issue of 
increasing market demand and increased poaching, um, the issue of enforcement, um, they also were supposed to ensure that they consulted a wide range of stakeholders and gave them an opportunity to comment. And one of the biggest criticisms of the report was that it wasn't translated into French. And so it immediately marginalized an entire block of African elephant range states who are francophones. Um, the other thing, of course, is that the original draft was 150 pages. Um, once the, cons the, the, the consultants had received comments from the identified stakeholders, these were supposed to be incorporated into the final report, which was then submitted to Standing Committee. This came forward as a 50-page document, but with con con constant you know, reference <laughs> to the larger document, which, of course, had not been accessible to a number of the stakeholders. So, and it also wasn't um, publicly available. So the document submitted to Standing Committee was the public document, which referred to another document which was not publicly available. Oh, huh. And in the document that was publicly available, the consultants proposed the establishment of a, <clears throat> excuse me, a central ivory selling organization. What are a few of the major flaws with this? Uh, okay, central ivory selling organization is modeled roughly around years, which of course, um, it, you know, depending on, on, on what, what, whichever way you look at it, it essentially is creating a monopoly. Um, it's, it's, it, it's not taking into account, you know, the, the current influencing factors on the trade. Um, it makes all sorts of flawed assumptions uh, discounts, you know, issues around corruption and governance. And um, also, um, De Beers was set up to monitor, control and regulate prices of diamonds, which come from, you know, fixed locations, which mm -hmm. theoretically can be easily uh, protected, policed, monitored um, and controlled. Elephant populations move vast distances. Um, they they don't recognise borders, so you know they, they are not the sole property of any one um, sovereign state. And and how how anyone could in, you know in any way police and manage that as as a commodity um, is is anyone's guess. I mean, at the end of the day, this is all about setting up a cartel to generate huge amounts of revenue for um, stakeholders. But again, stakeholders can be anyone from private landowners to, to actual governments. The communities are in there somewhere in the mix, but they're not, they're not clear stakeholders in the same way that, for example, private ranch owners are. Um, and we see now, similarly, um, a move in South Africa to try and legalize trade in right corn along the same line. Mm -hmm.
And they are also yeah. using this De Beers exactly. model as, as you know, an example and citing yeah. the success yeah. of the recent ivory sale as, yeah. as a model for the future of rhino horn. Success, you mean... Uh, <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> Depends what side of the fence. Success <laughs> yeah. in terms that they they were able to sell, you know, tons of of their their ivory. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and this is part of the problem. It's it's okay. it's, it's it's the perspective is is limited to what goes on within your own bubble. Right. Right. Um, and going back to the De Beers comparison. In the report, um, the authors say they have, um, and I'm quoting, a dual objective to obtain the best possible returns for the primary stakeholders and to gain control of the market, end quote. And then they say that that differs from De Beers, whose, quote, their aim is to maximize the income from diamonds. And I don't see a difference there, do you? Well, not really. I think it's just... <laughs> I mean, get the best price versus maximize the income. Isn't that the same thing? <laughs> I think so. I certainly think so. And the following also is stated in the report. They say it must be observed that the present system is not working so that there are strong imperatives for seeking an alternative. And is that really the case? Or is the African elephant crisis uh, more about enforcing current regulations and rooting out corruption? What What do you suppose uh, this is referring to? I don't think it's it's as straightforward as just making a simple statement that it's, it's not working. Mm-hmm. First, um, you know, there are different influencing factors in different geographical locations. Um, you know, some areas are experiencing, you know, conflicts, so have limited resources, you know, they are in a war zone. I mean, there are a whole range of different things at play. But in terms of the system, the problem is the system itself, which I'm assuming they're referring to the international ban, uh, that system has been undermined repeatedly by these one-off legal sales. Mm -hmm. The constant chipping away at the at the sort of the integrity of that ban is 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 partly mm-hmm. to blame for the failure, and then you have in you know alongside that you have the failure of enforcement, you have the failure both at the consuming yeah. end and also at the source okay, end. Well, an failure at the legislative level, failure at a political level, failure at an enforcement level. I mean, there is no one single reason why the system is failing, but it's a lot more straightforward to have one message, which is there is no trade, than to try and fud around the side of it by saying, well, it's okay if you, can, you can trade here, but you can't trade here. And this piece of ivory is legal, but that piece of ivory isn't. I mean, it's, it's an impossible um, situation for any enforcement body to monitor or control or even understand. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, tell us what people can do to help support your work uh, and the work of the Environmental Investigation Agency. Um, 
obviously, like many small NGOs, EIA is constrained by resources, both in terms of finance and in terms of personnel. So any help on that front is enormous. Um, obviously, we, we don't have field projects, and a lot of what we try to, to do has no tangible product that somebody can buy, if you like. It's a, it's a very intangible it's very intangible to do in terms of the actuality of the investigations and the outputs. But um, one thing that people can do is to sign up to our Facebook, follow yeah. us on Twitter, you know, read our blogs, contribute, engage with us, um, and, and spread the message, really. And, you know, take an interest and pass that interest mm. on to people. Raise the of the organization, tell yeah. people about the work of EIA, and, and what a great job. Excellent. I will do that, and I, I'm already doing that. I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mary, for taking time to speak with us today. It was really great to hear uh, more about this situation and particularly um, to get your opinion on this report. Okay, well, you're very welcome, and thank you for giving us the opportunity. Anytime. You've been listening to A Closer Look at a Biased Ivory Trade Report with Mary Rice from the Environmental Investigation Agency. This is Risha Kota Larson with Behind the Schemes.